0: of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to 8 this evening. Broadcasting to you today from Triple R World Headquarters at the end of the 96 line, up above the banks of the Merry Creek, which of course we know is on Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present and remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, It's very nice to be back in the studio as we approach the silly season, which I am willing to suggest will be a very silly season indeed. So I thought we would do something a little bit different tonight as we are approaching the end of the year, and that is to get friend of the show Ian Hamm on to talk about the year in in review. It hasn't just been the pandemic, there have been many, many things go down that affect First Nations people this year, so we'll get him on and we'll have a chat about that. You may uh, remember he's uniquely placed to talk about um, these issues because he wears so many hats in his role as a board member or chairperson across multiple organisations and agencies. This gives him a well-rounded view of things that happen in and around the Aboriginal affairs space, so we'll have a yarn with him shortly about which way the wind's blowing across a range of issues affecting mob. Now, uh, one of those issues, and it's a relatively new one, is this one. Now, you may have seen that the Morrison government announced, as they like to do, (laughs) plans to require ID to be shown when voters show up to vote at upcoming federal and state elections. Now, there are concerns, legitimate concerns, that this will dissuade people from lower socioeconomic groups from voting, and in particular, First Nations people. Now, there are a myriad of reasons as to why voter ID laws are a bad idea. First of all, there is little or no evidence of widespread voter fraud in Australia. We have many faults, but certainly our centrally run voting system isn't one of them. I always find myself very, very thankful when I look at presidential elections in the US, where each state and sometimes each county has their own system for retrieving and counting votes. Here we have one system run by one agency, the Australian Electoral Commission, and its state branches – So voter ID will make election day even more unpleasant for everyone as the time to verify people's ID and address against what is listed in the electoral roll will take an amount of time. It will particularly be stressful and time-consuming and pleasant for key groups, including us mob, Indigenous Australians. Uh, I would predict that it will be the same for uh, migrant women and men, people experiencing homelessness, not to mention the swathes of young adults that have not yet got adequate photo identification, such as a driver's licence, something lots of kids wouldn't have had the chance to get over the last 20 months or so due to the pandemic. So um, you don't have to be um, Einstein to work out where this is coming from. You have to ask yourselves, what are the motives behind legislating such a requirement? Well, um, it's a form, if you just acknowledge from the start that it's a form of voter suppression in the guise of laws pretending to address a problem that doesn't exist, then you're somewhere near the answer. Born out of some backroom deal with one nation, uh, we are told. And like most of our bad political ideas at the moment, this idea has come from Trumpian America, where in recent times, and particularly during the Trump era, there have been multiple attempts by Republican-governed jurisdictions to disenfranchise non-white voters and poorer people who would be less likely to vote Republican and more likely to vote Democrat. So we're doing that here, apparently. And I know it's not to the same extent, but it is the thin end end of the wedge. It is really just base-basism, really, that its worst kind. Plus, here's the other thing it's unlikely to actually get up. There's one week of parliamentary sitting for this year and something like 10 sitting days from January to August next year, including uh, the budget, um, I'm told, which is being brought forward to, to March. But in the meantime, what will happen is that we'll throw around another divisive issue for the electorate to contort over. The only way these laws will get up will be if the government is given the mandate at the next election. So that's where we are, and once again, First Nations people, people at the lower end of the socio-economic scale, old Australians and new Australians, are being drowned out in the toing and froing around this issue in the guise of protecting the integrity of our democracy. Now, um, <clears throat> the culture wars are just so. Boring, aren't they? They really, really are. Now, before we get on with the show, uh, we have to acknowledge the the sad passing of uh, David Dalithingu. He really was the best thing in every film that he appeared in uh, over his stellar fifty plus year career. Uh, so, we'd like to acknowledge his efforts tonight. Um, acknowledge the way that he promoted his culture and brought his culture to the screen into the homes and cinemas of. Mainstream Australia and without trailblazers like him, a lot of us wouldn't be where we are today. Uh, as per usual, the best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle at Mr. DT James. This is the mission.
1: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rr.org.au to find out how.
0: You listen to The Mission on 102.7 R FM, live from Triple R Weld Headquarters in Brunswick, East or East Brunswick, depending on how you want to talk about it. Now, like I um, said at the top of the show, um, we would take a different approach to this evening's uh, broadcast just because we can, and it's my show, and I can do what I want. Uh, so with that in mind, I thought I would get um, a very good friend of the show now. I think this is his fifth appearance on the show to um, get Ian Ham on the show, who is a uh, fellow Yorta Yorta man, and ha, uh, has many hats that he wears across various boards and organisations, and he has extensive experience across Aboriginal affairs in a range of portfolio areas. Um, let me think: um, education, Aboriginal affairs itself, uh, health, human services, a uh, whole range. And he's also on the board of the National Trust of Australia, Victoria uh he's involved with the australian red cross inclusive australia first nations foundation chairperson and he's also the chairperson of the community broadcasting foundation now he thinks deeply about a whole range of issues or at least pretends to um but i'm very very pleased to have uh, ian back on the show tonight to shoot the breeze ian welcome back to the mission uh how are you
1: going daniel
0: very 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 good um, thanks for coming on. Um, I thought of you when I thought well let's just uh, loosen the show up a little bit for tonight uh, and tonight only and let's just have a think about I guess it's not not just the year in review I guess eh? and I think it's probably the last 20 months of the pandemic while everything else has been going on and I thought that I would um, get you on the show just to just to shoot the breeze and have a yarn about some of the issues that have been confronting us as as mob in this place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that certainly has been a lot over that time. Um, I think because of the pandemic, we've all been focused on that. But the world has still been going round and there's been lots of stuff happening besides the pandemic.
0: The wheels keep on rolling. Let's start with um, Black Lives Matter. Um, Yeah. Now, that emerged, I guess, as an issue generated from uh, the US with uh, the slaying of a black man there at the hands Mm. of... Uh, uh, police officers and that sparked a whole um, bunch of uh, rioting and protests as it uh, should have. Not so much the rioting but the protests. And that filtered its way um, over here and it became a mainstream movement there and it, it attached itself to I guess to some way to black deaths in custody and the uh, the high incarceration rates that uh, Aboriginal people suffer in this country. What are your reflections um, on the Black Lives Matter movement and um, uh, was it effective? Is it something that's just, you know, strolling down the road and the procession has gone now and we're still left with the same issues? Did it make a difference? What are your reflections?
1: Yeah, look, I think, I think what made the difference about it was this was captured live by people with their phones. That's People talk about the impact of technology. We've known about Aboriginal people or black people in the United States or, or, or and First Nations people in the United States, not just the, uh, the black community but the, the uh, First Nations community, getting a raw deal by the justice system. Now, this was captured, and this has been going on since, you know, year dot, as it were, in terms of um, colonisation. But what made this different was that it was recorded, it wasn't by word of mouth. It wasn't by forensic evidence. It was just there to see. That made such a difference to how it was in everybody's face that the justice system is not done equally. So when, when, when that was captured and it was shown around the world um, that this is real and that this happens. And then in terms of Australia getting onto it, and on the top of that, the inquest into the death of Tanya Day here in Victoria. I mean, yes. that's where Melbourne really focused Victoria. Those two things, and because of the CCTV footage of Tanya Day in the cell in Castle Maine, um, and the lack of care by Victoria Police—who who were responsible for her—I um, think that really brought that to the fore. And it can never go away. Like, as they say, once it's in, once it's on in the digital universe, it's there forever. Um, So those two things are going to be there. So I think it actually has made a difference in that nobody can argue about this. Nobody can say that there are different perspectives. Nobody can say that there are uh, different versions. It's there for all to see. So I think actually the Black Lives Matter movement now has a real driver that can be revisited any time that it's, any time that it starts to wane or that people start to Go into that doubt mode about is this real? Is there any substance to it? Boom, there it is. So yeah, I, I, I think for me that's been the biggest change, and that it kept going over the the period of the pandemic. Like mm-hmm. I said, the world will still the world still turns, stuff still happens, and the pandemic was the biggest thing, but it wasn't the only thing.
0: Uh, but we should acknowledge that uh, Aunty Tanya Day's family have been amazing throughout this entire time. They were amazing and showed leadership and strength throughout the inquest into their mother's um, uh, pointless death, really. Uh, she should have been in hospital. She shouldn't have been in a police cell. And I guess with the, with the Black Lives Matter movement to Ian, it resonated here in terms of cases like that of uh, David Dungay Jr, who died um, at the hands of prison officers who were trying to restrain him, and he uttered Mm. the same awful words that uh, George Floyd uttered towards the end of his struggle, and that was, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And so that um, case as well was basically another, I guess, motivating factor that pushed the issue along.
1: Yeah, and it was again captured on video, captured on uh, camera inside uh, the uh, the police cells, and then you cannot be. It's indisputable evidence. It's there, and it can't be taken away. So I guess in that regard, um, as I said, the Black Lives Matter movement has actually moved, probably moved from being um, probably moved from being a pointy end protest around particular incidents to to now being able to say. There is a lot of evidence, repeated evidence, that all can see that there is something systemically and chronically wrong with how justice is administered, not only in this state but in this country and, indeed, in First World nations. That's the other part about this, Daniel, which, which if we were in a third world developing country where the political system is completely broken, where society is so inequitable that you can't even measure it, where people are in serfdom, which you could equate to the 16th century in Europe. I could kind of get it, but we're not. Mm. The United States, uh, Australia, we are first world democracies, and yet this happens to our citizens. There is something so intrinsically wrong, and we do have the capacity to address it. Uh, But I think we're in a position now where... the, the accelerator will not come off um, because this can be seen again and again and again.
0: Where are we at, though, in terms of the political will to do something about this? I mean, we're still at a point where we have you know, Aboriginal men and women dying in custody um, at uh, an appalling rate. Is the, is, is the problem with the way justice... One of the problems that, with the way that justice is administered in this country, the fact that we have so many different justice systems that have so many different levers and there's no one central point where there is a commissioner for um, Aboriginal incarceration, for instance, that overlooks the entirety yeah. of the, the various yeah. justice systems. There, There's a lot of finger pointing, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of centralised responsibility and that makes it much more difficult to, to, to move the system to a place where we need to get it.
1: Yeah, I think. Look, I think obviously, clearly, we have a number of justice systems in this country. We have your state jurisdictions and your commonwealth jurisdictions. Primarily, what we're talking about is the criminal justice system, which is at state jurisdictions. Now, we have uh, uh, we have six states uh, and two territories. So, and each of them have their own jurisdictions. So, a, a single approach to it won't work in terms of it of you know justice being dispensed that we're now 25 past 7 on any given Tuesday as it were in any of those jurisdictions but you can have a consistent a consistent set of national principles that you should all work to that you should all seek to get to or that guide you in what you do, that we can do nationally. Now where the politics comes into it and it's, it's you know um, when you look at the, the law and order debates that are routinely trot, trotted out when it comes to um, when it comes around election times, that's something which which you know, uh, in terms of politics, it's a very blunt instrument. Mm. There's no votes in blackfellas. There's lots of votes in in
0: whitefellas being uh, safe.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, lots of, there's lots of votes in whitefellas being safe. So you say we'll have more police. It, it's easy done. That's just raw politics. Sadly, we live in the age of the triumph of uh, mostly. We live in the age of the tri- the age of the triumph of politics over policy, which is which is an indictment just generally yeah. on where we are as a society. So I think I think that that issue is something you can't do anything about the politics. But what you can do is just, as I said before, you've got to constantly hammer away for it. I do think, though, Daniel, one of the things that actually happened today, which made me think, um, some of our institutions, whether they're courts, whether they're police or in the one I heard today ambulance uh
0: ambulance
1: oh, yes, services. Yes, yes. yep, yep. Yeah, so so here's a little bit of why not. I'll put out a bit of controversy I think one of the problems with institutions like the police or ambulance services or the fire is they're they're held in a certain esteem by the community okay and quite rightly because they do you know pretty critical work and at times fairly desperate work and in fairly in fairly you know um, compromising situations but it's almost at a point where those institutions or the people in them start to believe their own publicity, start to really believe that or start to think that they're, 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 um, the admiration for them almost makes them impregnable or beyond question. And then you end up with a situation where how they do their job is perhaps not to the standard we would expect. Or, as in the case of the ambulance services today, that's in the report that came out today about bullying and sexual harassment and intimidation, that they almost feel untouchable and they can do whatever they want. The problem is they're doing it to themselves in that part. But I think one of the things we're developing more is happening, I've seen happen over these past 18 months, is the serious questioning of our institutions. Yeah. Not so much should they exist, but questioning are they uh, are they as um, uh, uh, impregnable as we've told them that they are. are they, should they be allowed to do things without question? Should we not be able to examine them with a critical eye? I think that that's something which the past only months has, has taught us, is, is that we need to look at our institutions with a much more critical eye. That's not to denigrate them, but to say we shouldn't worship them without, without question, without um, analysing how they do their job, are they doing it to the standards we would expect and hope for? And that, in terms of Black Lives Matter, means the administration of justice in terms of fairness to people of all races and all backgrounds. That's what I think the Black Lives Matter uh, movement um, can build on at this moment.
0: And we've seen today, of course, with the uh, report handed down by the Australian Sex Discrimination uh, Commissioner into the the goings-on in um, in. Uh Parliament House, the heart of our democracy, which exposed a whole bunch of appalling behaviour at the treatment of uh, women and the the fact that um, one in three women in that place feel as though that they were um, sexually harassed at some point during their time yeah. there. Um, when we see reports like that come out and when we see reports like the ambulance services report that came out today as well, um, there is hope. But we've also got to remind ourselves that we had a Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody some 30-odd years ago. Yeah. Um, and some issues seem to gain, gain, of course, more traction, and, of course, that's what you said about, you know, not being many votes in, in, in blackfellas, if any. Um, you know, the, the yeah. blackfella vote's not going to swing an election. Um, uh, how hopeful are you that we, we're going to start getting some actual institutional traction on some of these issues?
1: I think, I think, look, the report today actually brought into question the institution... Of the Commonwealth Parliament, and what makes up the Commonwealth Parliament. Now, the Commonwealth Parliament as an operation itself. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. What, where the problem, where it's gone off the rails, is the political parties that make up. And the,
0: the political Commonwealth class. Parliament. The political class. I mean, I keep and it's that. I keep banging it, 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 on it, it, about the political class, Ian. In terms of, um, yeah. we have a political class that is more, um, I guess, postured to win. The, the debate of the day and score political points. And we have a political class that seems disinterested in policy development. I mean, actually completely disinterested in policy development. And so we have, um, we have, we have a place in Canberra called Parliament House where we have people trying to win all these petty little, petty little v- battles, um, usually um, <laughs> intoxicated a lot of the time, it would seem, and too much time on their hands because they're not actually developing policy.
1: I think I think the issue for me is not so much a political class, but a political profession. Now, what we've seen, particularly with the major parties, is that um, when I was young, so this is back in the, this is back in the twentieth century, Daniel. You know, kind of not, cent- not at the midpoint, a, a little bit later, but you know. When you used to wear century, bright
0: ties and uh, have sideburns.
1: That was the one. Yeah. <laughs> I, <had laughs> I was only a kid at that stage, but yeah, you get my drift. But 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 then. Politics wasn't a profession except for a very select few. The bulk of the major political parties were still people who had a life before they went into politics. And ministerial advisers didn't exist. They only started coming in with the Whitlam government. And in state governments, they didn't come in until the 80s, mid-80s, actually, you saw political advisers and stuff. So, so so, political parties were made up of people primarily, and they had much more broader membership they were people who had day jobs, who of putting it a better way, or had experienced other parts of life and stuff before they went into the politics. What you have now in the major parties, in particular, not just them, but the major parties mostly, is people who go to university, and that's primarily where our political profession comes from. Then they join one of the political clubs, be it Young Labour, Young Liberals, or Young Greens, and then they join the party and they join the party and they move straight out of university and they move into electorate office. Or they move into um, a union associated with the Labor Party or a law firm associated with the Liberal Party or one of the think tanks. With the Greens they might move into a lobby group. They go to an electorate office, something like that. They might get a job as a ministerial advisor. Then they fight for pre-selection. And if all goes well, they're in Parliament. Their basic life has been built around the construct of politics and they haven't done anything else. So when they do get into Parliament, what they know is politics, and hence your point about fighting the battles of the day to win the points of politics as opposed to thinking long-term, what does policy look like? Um, now, that, that's not absolute. So of course, there's crossovers with that, and there are very good policy people around, and we do have some thinkers in that. But that's kind of a... I've seen that change over my lifetime, yeah. and I think that leaves us now in a position where with things like Black Lives Matter, with Aboriginal Advancement, a lot of the drivers now coming from outside of government, but it's coming from people who are still focused on policy. Hence, look a good example is the Nacho and the um, the Nacho led Coalition of Peaks, which developed the closing the gap framework.
0: The National because Aboriginal it, Community Controlled Health Organization for the folks. That's at home. the
1: what Yet, yeah, Nacho leading the Coalition of Peaks, which developed a comprehensive Closing the Gap framework, which looked at the whole of life for people across everything and for all Aboriginal people, whereas the Commonwealth previously had only been able to come up with four targets aimed at specific sub cohorts within the Aboriginal community. So I think that shows that the policy drive is probably coming more externally from. Government rather than from when in government that 's a really big shift from when Golf Whitman was prime minister that 's a huge shift that 's you know? true and
0: that 's why so, that 's why the um, the attempts earlier this year to actually i guess muzzle um, uh, uh, non government organizations in terms of their advocacy work was so so dangerous because like you said a lot of the, a lot of the policy drive and a lot of the policy frameworks are actually like you say coming relatively from from the grassroots these days and we're finding governments adopting some of those frameworks and 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 policies but not so much developing them
1: yeah that that's absolutely right so and that's look in one sense it's it's good because it means people have skin in the game about not waiting for government to do something and then responding to it it means we can go to government say we have a long we have a long-term agenda we have a we have a a vision of where our sector, our community, whatever it is, wants to be. Community broadcasting. So I'll, I'll take off my original hat and put on my community broadcasting hat for a minute. We're doing the same. The sector is starting to look at, well, let's not just think about where we are now. What might this sector look like in 10 years? What might this sector look like in 20 years, given the the rapidly changing media landscape? We can't just exist in a moment. We really do have to think about what is the place of community broadcasting. Triple R being a classic example. What is the place of community broadcasting in a rapidly changing media environment, particularly at local media level, where there is, where there has been withdrawal of commi- of commercial media at the local level. So it's, it tends to be all syndicated. So what vacuum is, is there that really needs to be filled, that particular community broadcasting can step into? So that, and over a 20-year period. So that's, that, again, that, that the drive and the policy sense coming from those who have skin in the game in the subject matter and saying to government, we're, here's our vision of where we want to be, what can you do to support us get there?
0: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You listen to a show on uh, R, your favourite community radio station, um, called The Mission. And I am speaking with um, a fellow, a your fellow called Ian Ham, And we're just chewing over the fat of all the issues that have affected mob over the last 20 months during this pandemic that either have or have not got enough airtime. Um, look, we've solved Black Lives Matter, Ian, uh, we've solved um, incarceration rates, we've, we've solved death in custody. Um, let's move on to the, uh, the Uluru Statement. Uh, we've seen with uh, the this federal government that, of course, they're not adopting the idea of embedding a voice or a Magna Carta into the Constitution. They've gone for a legislative approach, which is similar to the approach they used to establish ATSIC, which means that at any point in the future, um, the uh, the Uluru voice or statement from the heart and the the the, the body that is attached to that can be wiped out with uh, a pen and therefore it's not actually um, embedded into the constitution which would take a majority of votes and majority of states to first of all get in and then to first of all and then secondly to be thrown out again if the people wanted that. Um, Labor has said that it is supportive of the statement and that they will move to enshrine it in the constitution. Um, Where do you see things are in terms of the Uluru Statement at the moment?
1: Yeah, look, I, I, I think it's progressing about where I expect it to be. Um, the genie is out of the bottle and it can't be put back in. So so what the federal government didn't do was say, no, we're not going to talk about representation or a voice. They didn't say that. They said, we don't like that voice, that particular version of the voice, we'll come up with another one. But the idea of, of a representation of the broad Aboriginal voice to to speak on behalf of the broader community, to government, to parliament it's there. That genie cannot be put back in the bottle. So I think in that context, Ken White has handled this the best he could, given that the government he's in, I mean, it's a fairly, um, how would you say, um, it's got a whole bunch of divergent views.
0: Yes, that's one way of it. Is that what
1: I mean? Yes. yes. Okay. So he's managed that so the genie cannot be put back in the bottle. It's there. And, and no government and no minister can put that back in. So, so while it hasn't immediately gone to where the Uluru statement went to, we're on it. We're on a track. We're on a track. We're on a. We're on a, a path that we ain't turning back from. How we get to the end destination, we're on the scenic route rather than a straight line. So I'm, I, I I'm. Get where we're at, and I think this is stuff that we will work through. If there is a change of government, that track takes a different path. That track takes a different path. That track goes in a different direction um, because the Labor government have said they do want to take this to referendum. Now, what does that entail and what does that mean? Um, that, well, Getting the majority of people in the majority of states to get on board with that referendums in this country are notoriously hard to win, extraordinarily hard to win. So that in itself is something you would not rush into. You have to build the groundswell and the support and everything like that. But as I said, look, I, I, in, in terms of that, I'm comfortable with it about um, the, the voice Parliament. The other thing about the Uluru statement, just in itself, as a piece of writing and what it expresses, it's beautiful. That document is is that document is almost the, the American Constitution starts off with with expressions of we the people, and talks about a more perfect union. Its language is is its language is brilliant in what it communicates. Um, The Gettysburg Address, if you've ever read that, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln said in two and a half minutes what the Speaker before him couldn't do in one hour and 45 minutes. And that guy wrote to the President later and said, he said more in that two and a half minutes about capturing why we're fighting this war and what it means to us as a nation than I could say in an hour and a half. So as a piece of writing, in terms of encapsulating the ideals of the people, the hope that we have, and what we bring to the Commonwealth of Australia, and what we hope for the better of Australia, it's a brilliant piece of writing. It, it, it is, in one sense, I looked at it and I just felt all Ben chifley That is, it yeah. was the light on the hill that we need.
0: Yeah, the, it's, it's, it was beautifully written, and I know that there are divergent views across um, you know our community, Ian, as there should be and always are. Uh, we mm. we not all not all. Um, we're not sheep. We don't all think the same way. But as as a, a document by itself, it, it is just a just amazing. It's not, um, I'll just read from it. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. Our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope, our future. Um, it, it, it just it laid it out in a really beautiful. Um, poignant, but very direct manner. And I I, I personally think um, one of the things that will um, continue to tar Malcolm Turnbull's uh, legacy was his rejection of it straight away without even really having talked to any of the stakeholders involved.
1: I I have to say his take on it as a third uh, chamber of parliament, my first reaction was, Malcolm, where did you get your law degree from? The um, TAFE College at Upper Kambuckna West or something like that? Because any lawyer will tell you that that would not enshrine, even within the constitution, that doesn't make it a third house of parliament. So it's kind of like Malcolm. You need to go back to constitutional law one hundred and one, um, you know, which happens in high school.
0: No, even even else. even Barnaby so came around.
1: That, sorry to the TAFE system. So <laughs> if I insulted the TAFE system by saying that, I'm sorry. I'm a director of Homescreen TAFE, so I should be really sorry about that. But but you know, I, I I just think that that was such a such a silly thing for him to say. Any any participation or view he legitimacy he had of. In the debate, he just shot to bits by shooting himself in the foot. It's such a bad interpretation of basic constitutional law.
0: And even even Barnaby has uh, accepted since then that his characterisation as a third chamber as well was just um, just ridiculous. And um, but it got all the headlines, and it really took the wind out of the sails of of, yep. of the statement itself. And we're still trying to get the wind back in those uh, sails um, as we speak. Yep. Um, one of the more frustrating issues that um, continues to be fought on all sorts of different fronts by community organisations and advocates across the country, both black and white, is the raise the age campaign, Ian. And we've had, uh, we've had people from uh, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service on here a number of times. We've had other legal advocates and scholars um, frustrated at the, the lack of commitment by all jurisdictions, except for the ACT, to actually raise the age on this. Now, we live in what is supposed to be the most progressive state in Victoria, and yet we are still sending kids as young as 10 to prison, on remand, without charge and they are being indoctrinated into what is a very different world from where they should be. Where are we at with this issue, issue, in your opinion?
1: I think, I think, again, it's one of those ones where we are really calling into question our own values and our own beliefs around, is this how we want to live? Is this who we are as a society, that, that we're criminalising 10-year-olds? I mean, um, I think back to when I was 10, I was in grade 5 you know, and even when I was 14... The i happy, was the, the
0: happiest three years of your four, life.
1: Four. Yeah. <laughs> four, but four and four, you know, but I was still a kid. To, to say that a kid who is 10 years old should be retreated as an adult in the criminal justice system is, for want of a better term, Dan, Daniel, criminal in itself. It is. It shows a very lightweight understanding of society. It shows a very lightweight understanding of... of um, social structure, um, it actually calls into... It, well, I can't find another way of putting it. calls into disbelief that people forget what they were like when they were children um, and, and, and reflects a very... Such a myopic view of the world, one that is so black and white and incapable of understanding subtlety. Um, it does make me think... Um, it does make me think at times, you know, when you walk down you, down the street, you think, what goes through these people's minds? But there you go. I, I I struggle with it as as why you can justify it. I think again, though, again, living in the age of the triumph of politics over policy, I'll be honest. I think governments want to raise it, but they also if, they also don't want to be exposed to you know the the government's weak on crime. They're not tough on crime, and boom. There's a whole, there's a whole uh, 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 electoral campaign there in its own right. Although I do have to say, in Victoria, I think there is a bit of, um, a bit of a shift in that the last election here in Victoria, when Matthew Guy went very hard on the African gangs and Peter Dutton chipped in his two bobs were saying Melbourne, Melbourneians are afraid to go to restaurants because of African gangs.
0: Yeah.
1: And and the Liberal Party beaten about really, really bad in the boxing ring of the election. That just did not resonate. Victorians just went, nah, that's stupid. And we had a dance fight. So I think, I, think, I think by holding the mirror up to ourselves, there is a mood to change that, to look at it and say, is that really who we are? That we will lock up children the same as we will lock up hardened criminals and regard any 10-year-old who, who does something wrong should be treated the same as, you know, um, a 45-year-old repeat recidivist,
0: as it were. Yeah, well, that's what we hope to do in our small little way on this show, uh, Ian, is just to continue to bang on about some of these issues until there is some change, because it's just unacceptable. And what, we're, what we've learned over too, um, I mean, in recent years, of course, is how out-of-home care is often a gateway to, to remand or, or custody or, yeah. or, or juvenile detention. So there's a myriad of issues there. We know that there are good people across the place that are working to address those, and we hope to amplify those voices as we continue on with this show. Um, it is quarter to eight. You're listening to The Mission. My name's Daniel. I'm speaking with Ian Ham, who wears many hats and knows many things. Uh, a similar issue, Ian, is the 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 amount of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women being incarcerated here in Victoria, mm. and one of the, the sub-issues within that is that there is actually no remand centre for women in Victoria. So so we're finding ourselves with um, so many Aboriginal women, um, often for things like unpaid fines, being thrown into sometimes maximum security prison while they await charge or wait for their, for their court hearing. And that again is another unacceptable set of circumstances.
1: Yeah, and as I understand it, the Dame Phillips frost Centre, uh, which is the main um, um, uh, custodial facility here in Victoria, main jail for women here in Victoria, is 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 basically you know bulging at the at the edges. Um, it is. Edges. Yeah. So so look, I think one of the issues there is Victoria has the has the most extraordinary uh, bail system in the country. Um, the bail bail.
0: Bail laws, is another medieval
1: one. Medieval times. Bail laws. I mean, that's what this is based on. Why are there so many people in custody? Well, bail laws in Victoria is one of the problems. The, the, since, since, what, medieval times, certainly the time of the of the Reformation in, in England, the legal system has been that a person should be free unless there is a reason for them to be incarcerated when they are charged with something. That has just been a fundamental uh, tenet of the legal system. And yet, Victoria switched that a few years ago, so that the default position is you will be in custody, you will be remanded in custody, unless there is a reason for you to not be in custody. So it's a complete one hundred and eighty, extraordinary. Which is why the Victorian the Victorian custodial system is 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 is, is um, uh, being crushed under its own weight. We have so many people in custody. We have more people. We have more people in custody now. Um, uh, in the judicial system per head of population um, than we have had since about the mid 1880s yeah. right
0: yep the mid 1880s and in As real
1: terms that's it's, it's extraordinary that we have, we have a, we have more people in custody per head of population now than than we've had since about the mid 1880s the mid 1880s 5 years after Ned Kelly was hung, when the, when the judicial system was so loaded in uh, along class lines when the police were if we think we have issues with the police we got nothing on the police forces of the 19th century in colonial Victoria you know mm. uh, give me Victoria police now compared to those guys and and that's where we've gone to without without legal system so and I know the Victorian government is looking about how do we how do we get out of this what do we do with this because this this clearly doesn't work and any criminologist, Anybody involved with the the custodial system and the uh, uh, how to manage people in the judicial system will tell you that simply keeping people in custody doesn't work. That should not be a default option. You need diversionary programs. I oh, was at um, oh, corrections.
0: Sorry, mate. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I, I was at in... um, Dame Phyllis Frost um, earlier this year for the Beyond the Bars broadcast with uh, 3CR. And um, in terms of what you were saying about uh, the conditions out there. Um, it, it did seem to be like um, not only were there um, a lot of uh, uh, women, of course, there, but there were a lot of Aboriginal women there. And, um, you know, we had Aboriginal women giving birth to, to children while whilst in, in custody. And you're just wondering, yeah. you know, where's, where's, the, where's the where's the break going to come in terms of, you know, breaking down some of these uh, cycles of, of disadvantage? So the way we're geared at the moment with this, I guess, prison prison industrial complex that we seem to have inherited from uh, America in terms of both policy settings and in terms of the way we've actually built some of these places, um, you just wonder where, what the circuit is going to be because it's not an election issue, that's for sure.
1: Oh. No, it's not. It's not. It's, it's part of that bigger, bigger law and order. Issue which yep. get, which routinely gets brought up around election times. So it will be interesting to see what happens in Victoria over the, over the next twelve months as we go to the next state election, because Matthew Guy Matthew Guy led Liberal coalition at the last um, uh, election just got flogged in the polls because they went down that path. So it expressly says Victorians aren't interested in that. So does that open the opportunity for reform of the legal and the custodial systems? Because it will become something which isn't an election issue. It's not worth trying to fight on because the electorate is just not interested in it and is just not buying it, which actually takes me to the point of the the victorian election was one on the economy last time and big projects and what we're doing to make victoria a better place in the aboriginal community instead of focusing trying to fix you know focusing only on the things that are broken and how do we stop them getting worse because all that does is just stop things getting worse how do we actually build uh, a set of circumstances which 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 just take Aboriginal people away from getting in that trouble in the first place, getting in those terrible positions in the first place. That's where economic policy and that's where social progressive policy really has to play a much greater part than it has done in the past so that we don't go into those places in the first place where people are exposed to the criminal justice system. Because, And I'm big on the economic policy because the basic tenet of our society is if you're doing OK economically, you just don't come into contact with the criminal justice system. It's as simple as that. You've got a roof over your head. You've got security of, of uh, food. You've got security of a of, um, of place, of belonging. That, that gives you as an individual that security you don't have if you're living in poverty, if you're excluded from the economy, if you're on the fringes of society. And that's where we need to use social policy and economic policy so that our children don't go in the places that we have. Certainly we need to reform the legal and custodial systems and those other systems. But we shouldn't focus on that. We should be looking at lifting us using using economic policy and broader social policy, so that our children just don't have a life that we've lived.
0: Okay. So one more issue. Um, one more issue, Ian. Before we um, uh, let you go and, and sign off, um, treaty in Victoria. We've seen yep. the um, emergence of the Yurok Commission over the past, I think, just over 12 months now, the Truth-Telling Commission, which is attached to the uh, treaty process and something that um, Aboriginal people have been long asking for for, for such a long time. Uh, how do you see treaty progressing in this place we now know as Victoria?
1: Yeah, look, I think the treaty, uh, the, the, the treaty process... I think there's two things here, the treaty process and the Truth-Telling Commission. So the treaty process, I think, is progressing... Um, for some, it's too slow. But I guess when you think about it, this has never been done before in this country. And it's easy to look overseas and say, oh, look how they did it. They will tell you from their experience overseas, this takes a really long time to do because it's, it's, it's something that has never been done before. And there are so many things that have to be dealt with. Or at the start, everybody wants to deal with. How do you sort what you're going to deal with, and in what sequence and order that you do that in? That's one of the things. So I think I think that the First Peoples Assembly and the focus it's giving uh, to, to, if you like, setting the scaffolding for treaties to to be negotiated, is important, and it's going at the rate uh, probably quicker than look. To be honest. Probably quicker than I expected, which is really good. Um, some of the things have to be open that they put forward are open to negotiation with the state government. That I think is something new for us: is negotiating with the state government as opposed to demanding from the state government. That's a different. That's a different. Um, yeah, negotiating way with of the crown. interacting. Yeah, yeah, we're negotiating, um, which is new for us and it's new for the crown, new for the government. So there's there's that that thing of equals negotiating as opposed to one calling the shots and the other one yelling back at it that's that's different so i think we're we're going as well as can be expected in that space and i note the discussion paper for the um treaty assembly uh treaty authority yeah uh, which will likely be the umpire around treaty negotiations that's just been put out there's some stuff in there that if i was the government i'd go eh, yeah let's talk about that bit and, you know some of it's really good some of it we want to have a chat about because we've got views on it too that's what negotiation works like. Um, in terms of the commission, the Europe commission, having a truth-telling commission is such an important step. But Once you establish it, what truth do we tell? What truths are we talking about? What's the story we want to come out of this? And where do we go with it? So I know the commission led by uh, Professor Eleanor Burke is working through all that at the moment. They're doing a huge amount of background research. I've met with the commission myself, the five commissioners, Um, And they did indulge me because they let me go for, I don't know, they let me talk a lot. Well, I've let
0: you talk a lot tonight, Ian. I know. We're approaching approaching the end of the show. (laughs) Um, Sorry. No, no, thank you. It's been an illuminating discussion as always. Um, I hope people out in in, uh, radio land were listening in and um, understand that while things are still um, frustrating on a lot of fronts, there is progress actually being made. And um, we're actually poised to take advantage of some of that progress once we continue to open this place up. But once again, Ian, thank you so much for your time. Um, uh, Enjoy the summer of cricket. I know you're a cricket buff. And um, we'll get you on the show sometime early in the new year.
1: And if you do want anybody to give you uh, a bit of uh, uh, perspective on cricket, just give me a call, mate. I'm always happy to have a chat over the cricket too.
0: I'll do that during day one of the first test.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love for <laughs> Thanks, Ian. All right, Daniel. You have a, you have a good Christmas and uh, no see we'll,
0: we'll you soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.